Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, if you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 18, I'd like to look at that passage for just a few minutes with you today. Second Samuel 18 says this, Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zerai, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, well, they, they will not care about us, but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders of Abs about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I fell to my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he still was alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, and Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that's in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Now we're going to skip down to verse 31 of chapter 18. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? The Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply troubled and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So I had a relative who was getting, giving away a fish tank. Uh, she had to get rid of it, and she uh, wanted Stephanie and I to take it. They thought that we would give the fish a good home. And so I had, hadn't been having, didn't have any fish for a while, and so I thought I'd try uh, keeping a tank again. And so I get this fish tank and carefully moved it over, put it in my office, 
I got a nice new filter for the fish tank. I even went to the store and got a friend for uh, the fish that was in there. There was only one fish, a little goldfish. I thought it needed a friend, so I got a friend for it. I got a uh, plant and put in there. I did regular water changes, and everything was going splendidly. Well, then one day I came into my office, and I saw the fish that uh, this relative had given me was on the ground in the tank. It was still alive, but it was just kind of sitting on the gravel. I thought, that's a little bit strange. But I didn't think much of it. I looked, did a quick Google search and found out that sometimes they just do that. I guess they get tired, uh, but it could mean a number of different things. So I didn't think much about it. Didn't really worry about it. Just, you know, put it in the back of my mind. Well, a few days later I came in and both of the fish were on the bottom of the fish tank. So I thought, oh, that seems a little suspect. That seems pretty strange that they're both laying uh, on the ground in the tank. I'd never seen anything like that. But I kind of still put it in the back of my mind and I went, got to work. Then Stephanie came in and she saw the fish. I was like, yeah, they're acting kind of weird. And she looked a little bit closer, a lot closer than I looked, and noticed that the, the fish had part of its tail that was missing. It's like, oh, that's not good. It's got to have some kind of disease. So I thought to myself, well, I'll wait till this afternoon or sometime and I'll get some medicine, give it to the fish. And Stephanie's like, no, you got to go now. This fish is sick. You've got to help this fish. So finally, I do that. I go to the store, get some medicine for the fish, and then I called the fish place, and I'm like, what, what should I do with this fish? They told me to raise the temperature. I went, so I went out and bought a thermometer and a heater, and I put uh, aquarium salt in there. I did everything that I could to save this fish. Well, a couple days later, I came in, and the one fish was doing well. He was starting to revive the other fish didn't make it, though. Happened to be the fish that my relative had given me. So they gave it to me to provide a good home for it, and within less than a month, I killed the fish. The thing was, I didn't notice those warning signs, or I didn't pay attention to those warning signs. If I would have treated the fish quickly, he might not have died. Sometimes we have this tendency to always think that there's more time. Think that there's always tomorrow, that it's never too late. And in all actuality, there is a nugget of truth in that. In God's, uh, God's eyes, we can come to him at any time, and whenever we repent and confess our sins to him, he'll forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even if we get to the end of our life and are on our deathbed and then repent, it's not too late for us. So in that sense, it's true, but there's another sense that it's not true. The scriptures only promise us today. They only promise us now. Today we can repent. Today we can turn to God. Today we can seek reconciliation in our relationships. And in terms of our earthly lives and the effects of our actions in our earthly life, there may come a time in our life where certain things, where it's too late, where we can't undo the harm that we've done. Sir Thomas Fuller said this, you cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon it may be too late. See, I think Satan often comes at us with two equal and opposite errors. He comes at us with this lie where he says, it's too late for you. You better just give up. You better just indulge in your sin because it's too late for you to be fixed. That's the one lie. But the other lie that he comes at us with is that he tells us that it's never too late 
that you might as well just push it off to tomorrow. Tomorrow you can fix today's mistakes. His old story goes that Satan was looking for someone to send to, uh, he was looking for a demon to send to the earth to ruin men's souls. And so he asked for volunteers for uh, who would go. And so the first demon came up and he says, uh, and Satan said to him, so what would you tell the children of men? He said, well, I would tell them that there is no heaven. And Satan said, no, they're, they're never going to buy that. There's a little bit of heaven in everybody's heart. And everybody knows that there has to be some afterlife and there has to be some reward for faith. And, and so I'm not going to send you. They're never going to buy into that. So another demon volunteered. The other demon says, well, I would tell them that there's no hell. Satan said, well, they're not going to buy into that. Everyone has a conscience. Everyone knows that evil must ultimately be done away with, that wrongs must be made right. They're never going to buy into that. Well, the third demon came to him, even more vile and dark than the others. Satan said, what would you tell the children of men? He says, well, I would tell them that there is no hurry. And Satan said, fine, go. I think that's one of the lies that Satan tries to tell us is that there's no hurry. That there's always tomorrow to repent. There's always tomorrow to change. The passage that we're looking at today, David is coming to the painful realization that his relationship with Absalom is coming to a close and that there's no hope of restoration. Remember last week in chapter 13, we looked at the story of how Amnon defiled his half-sister Tamar, the full uh, sibling of uh, Absalom. And after that, Absalom took vengeance into his own hands and he killed Amnon. And as a result of that, he was kind of separated and estranged from his father's household. He was spent three years in Jeshur, away from Jerusalem. And then after some prompting from Joab, he was brought back to Jerusalem, but he wasn't allowed to enter into his ki to the king's presence, his father's presence, for two more years. Then it seemed like there was a little bit of restoration when David kissed Absalom, but shortly thereafter, Absalom mounted a rebellion against David, and then in the course of that rebellion, Absalom ended up being killed by David's forces. But what's interesting about the whole situation is that it seemed like David, in some sense, wanted to be reconciled to his son. 2 Samuel 14, verse 1, it says, Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. In chapter 18, verse 5, it says, The king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders, about Absalom. Now, we don't have complete insight into what was going on in David's mind at this time frame. We don't know why he didn't reach out to be reconciled to Absalom. But we know that he had some desire to do that, and yet it didn't come to fruition. Maybe, just maybe, he put it to the back of his mind. Maybe he thought to himself, it's all, there's always tomorrow. There's always the future to be reconciled to my son. That would explain why he says to deal gently with Absalom, because maybe there could be a restoration in the future. But if only David would have acted sooner, if only David would have went out into the wilderness to just sure to be reconciled to his son, how different would the situation have been? In the last three months, if there's anything we've learned 
I think we've learned that life is fragile. And in the blink of an eye, all of the things that we love can be taken away from us. And this passage is a reminder for us in all different areas of life not to put off uh, to tomorrow what we can do today. Today is the day to start having a quiet time with the Lord. Today is the day to start leading our families in devotions. Today is the day to start being healthy. Today is the day to start getting out of debt. Today is the day to repent and to change because we're not promised tomorrow. And even if tomorrow comes, repentance tomorrow is going to be much more difficult than repentance today. Samuel Johnson said this, repentance is always difficult and the difficulty grows still deeper, uh, greater by de delay. So tomorrow's repentance will be more difficult to, than today. And so there's far-reaching implications for this passage and how we live our lives and the admonition to uh, today make the changes that we want to make in our lives. But I'd like to focus a little bit more specifically today on the relational component of this teaching because that's what it deals with in this passage. Literally, we do not have time to waste quarreling and maintaining animosity towards one another. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. I mean, this admonition in this passage is stunning to me because I would expect Jesus to say, so if you do wrong to somebody, then you should go and make that wrong right. But Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, if you've done wrong, go and make it right. That's kind of already implied. He says, if someone has something against you, then go and make it right. Go and try to be reconciled to that person. And so you can be in a situation where maybe you're not angry with that person at all. You don't have any conflict with that person. You've put it out of your mind, but you know that person has something against you. And Jesus says that it's better to leave your gift on the altar, to leave a place of worship, to go and be reconciled with that person. See, when we approach conflict, I think we often think of it uh, kind of in binary terms. We think of it as, okay, so did I do something wrong? If the answer is yes, I need to go and make it right. I need to go apologize and try to fix the relationship. But if the answer is no, if I don't believe that I did something wrong, then sometimes we, go, we, we, we say, okay, I don't need to worry about it. I don't need to be reconciled in that relationship. That person has something against me. That person did something wrong, and so I'm not going to worry about it. If they want to fix it, they can come to me. But that's not what Jesus calls us to in this passage. I mean, say you're a parent and you have two kids that are fighting constantly. And one child says it's, it's his fault and he says it's her fault. Now, as a parent, you're not as concerned whose fault it is. You just want your children to get along. And that's what God's heart is. God wants us to get along. And it doesn't matter if they started it or we started it. We should do everything that we can to be reconciled with those around us, even if we didn't do anything wrong. Early last month, hundreds of people went to uh, Johnson City, Tennessee, and, and many cities throughout the country to protest uh, police brutality in response to the George Floyd uh, killing. 
And as the crowds were dispersing, or were, were gathering, one of the deputies on the scene, his name was David Kate. And he describes the tension that was building on both sides between police officers and protesters. But Cade says, as the crowds began to form, there was one person that caught his eye. He said, I could see the frustration, the pain. He says, I felt God speak to me and tell me that I go, needed to go talk to him. The man, was, his name was Mark Carlua. He had gone to Johnson City to peacefully protest. He said, the moment he came up to me, that meant leaps and bounds to me. That meant the world to me. That he would see me in the middle of the crowd and say, Sir, I see you and see what you're fighting for. Shortly thereafter, photos were taken, which you can see on the screen, of David and Mark hugging each other. It's a moment that they'll never forget. Kate, the police officer, told him, Look, I have a black niece. I love her so much. I care about her. And I hate that this stuff is going on. And we need to make a change. We need to make it better. We need to work together. Carlua said he was thankful to Officer Kate for taking the time to listen. He said, when he started talking about the realization and how much he understood, I could see the sincerity in his eyes. I felt the sincerity in his heart. He said, I broke down, looking at him eye to eye. I never can say I looked at a cop and saw understanding. Kate said, I truly believe we have a lot of good officers out there. We have a lot of good people in the community. If we learn to work together, we can make a difference. We can make a change for the good. Carlewa said, if you're out there fighting, don't fight with violence. He says, we're not rioters. We're fighting in a way of peaceful protest. We come together. We don't break apart. As soon as we break apart, our words become weak. See, reconciliation starts when we reach out. See, that police officer here, he could have said to himself, well, I've done nothing wrong. I'm not racist. I've never treated somebody with disrespect. I don't have a problem with anyone else. But he saw the hurt and pain in someone else's eyes, and he chose to reach out to that person. And so as believers, when somebody has something against us, we need to do everything we can to be reconciled to them. We see another aspect in this text that is very interesting. It says in the text that as Absalom was riding along, that his head got stuck in the midst of an oak tree. Uh, one reason it's interesting is because earlier, in earlier chapters, it spoke of his great luxurious hair, that he had this wonderful hair. And kind of his greatest strength has now become his greatest weakness. But what's interesting about the fact that he was hanging from that tree is that it says in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, that a man who's hung on a tree is cursed by God. Further, and that's probably why, Ab, why Joab was so quick to throw the spear through him. Because he recognized this man is hanging from a tree, this man is cursed by God. And so after he's killed, then they bring him down, they throw him in a pit, and they throw stones over his body. Now, post-mortem desecration, it was believed, was something that was reserved for the worst of criminals. It was this idea that, so if you have someone who murders someone else, the kind of just corresponding punishment to that, would they would be put to death. I mean, that's kind of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But what would you do for someone who's done... 100, committed 100 murders or genocide. In that case, there's no real punishment to fit the crime. And so that's what being hung on a tree or being covered in stones, your body being destroyed, that's what it 
signified. In essence, the person, when people would do that, they were saying, we don't have a punishment that fits the crime. We can't punish this person adequately, so this person is cursed by God, and we're leaving their judgment into God's hands. And so I believe that's what's happening here. He's cursed by God, being hung on a tree, and then his body being covered in stones, in essence saying, this man's cursed by God, we are done with this person. Now, after David hears about this, he says something interesting. He weeps and he says, oh, Absalom, my son, Absalom, would, I, would that I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, what I find interesting about this statement is the fact that David's forces had killed Absalom. David had given the order for his forces to go out and fight against Absalom and his forces. Of course, he said to deal gently with him, but he had given the order to attack, to fight. Further, we see in the text that, that we just read that David, originally he was going to go out and fight himself, but the people convinced him, you, don't, you shouldn't go out. You should stay back in the temple. You need to protect yourself. Because if you get killed, people's morale will be, will be uh, very low. So he says, just protect yourself. And David goes along with this. He stays back in the temple and says, I'm going to protect myself. But if he would have gone out, he could have saved Absalom. If he would have gone out seeing that Absalom was hanging from that tree, he could have went up and cut Absalom down. And even if Absalom was under the judgment of God, David could have said, I'm going to take his place. Does that sound familiar at all? See, the scriptures tell us that we're Absalom hanging in that tree. Scriptures say that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death. We are all Absalom hanging in that tree, unable to save ourselves. But we don't have a God that's like David, who chose to protect himself, to stay in the temple and simply wished us well. We serve a God who left the throne room of heaven and came down and came up and cut us down from that tree and said, I'll die in your place. David said... I wish you well. I wish I could have taken his place, but Jesus actually did it. And then after that, it says in the Gospels that Jesus was taken down from the tree and he was put in a tomb and a stone was put over the mouth of the tomb. Jesus took the judgment, the wrath of God. Jesus is the true father, the true king that we all long for, the true the king that Absalom needed. See, reconciliation begins with reaching out, but it ends with sacrifice. It begins with reaching out, but it ends with sacrifice. If we're going to be restored to our brother or sister who, we're in enmity, who we are at enmity with, we need to start by dying to ourselves. We need to reach out, and as we reach out, it often means sacrificing. Maybe it means giving up the right to be right. Maybe it means giving of ourselves when the other party doesn't deserve it. Maybe it means offering forgiveness when forgiveness is not deserved. There was a 5th century monk named Telemachus, and Telemachus was a man of God, and so he wanted to strive to follow after God with all of his heart, and so he thought the best way to do that was to go out into the wilderness 
And just to spend time reading scripture and spending time praying and spending time with God. And so he did that for a while. And then he felt God speaking to him and saying, you know, you're just focused on yourself. You want a close relationship with God, but you don't care about anybody else. So he felt God telling him that he had to leave the wilderness where he was spending time with God and go back to the city and serve the people in the city. Well, this time, the Roman general Stilchio had just won a great battle against a foreign army. And the Roman emperor at this time was Christian. And, but while it was Christian, they still maintained a few practices from their pagan past. And one of those practices was the gladiatorial games. So what they would do is they would take prisoners of war and they would put them in the Colosseum to fight to the death and a great crowd, sometimes up to 80,000 plus, would gather to watch them fight to, the, to their death. Now the day that, still, er, that um, Telemachus entered into Rome was the day of one of these gladiatorial contests and he heard the roar of the crowd and so he entered into the Colosseum and seeing what, happened, what was happening, he was disturbed by the fact that brothers were killing one another, that people whom God loved and cared about, who were made in God's image, were killing one another. And meanwhile, this supposedly Christian crowd was watching, cheering them on. So he decided he had to do something about it. So he climbed down into the Colosseum with the gladiators, and he stood between the gladiators and implored them to stop. Well, of course, this enraged the crowd who uh, were angry that their entertainment was being messed with. And so after some debate, after some uh, quarreling, they ended up stoning him to death. Three days later, the, the Roman Emperor Honorius declared Telemachus a martyr and ended the gladiatorial contest. Historian Edward Gibbon observed the following about Telemachus. His death was more useful to mankind than his life. He sacrificed for peace, for reconciliation. Ladies and gentlemen, reconciliation begins with reaching out, but it ends with sacrifice. And today is the day that we need to start that process of reconciliation if there's people in our life that have something against us that we're in conflict with. Because we can't get down the road that David went on where he's longing to have a relationship with son, his son after his son is dead. Say, only if I would have sacrificed, if only I could have taken his place. Well, he could have started that process so much earlier. And the farther we get down that road, the more difficult it comes. And so the question I'd ask today is, who do you need to reach out to today? Who do you need to send a text message to, or an email, or set up a meeting, or give a phone call to? Who in your life are you at enmity with that God is calling you to reach out to, to be at peace with. We can't wait until it's too late. Time is running out. Professor Will Williman tells a story of uh, going to a funeral early in his ministry in rural Georgia. He was uh, accustomed to ministering in the city, and so he went to this kind of um, backwater town wasn't really familiar with the way that they did things there. And so he went to this funeral. And when the casket opened, the, sir, the preacher started preaching. He pounded the pulpit, looked over at the casket, and he said, it's too late for Joe. He might not have wanted to get his life together. 
He might have wanted to spend more time with his family. He might have wanted to do that, but he's dead now. It's too late for him. But it's not too late for you. There's still time for you. You can still decide. You're still alive. It's not too late for you. Today is the day of decision. Then the preacher went on to tell how a greyhound boss had one uh, had in the past run into a funeral procession on the way to the cemetery, and that it could happen even today. He says you should decide today. Today is the day to get your life to get together. It's too late for old Joe, but it's not too late for you, he said. Will Williman describes how he was so angry that the preacher would preach in this way. On the way home, he told his wife, have you ever seen anything as manipulative and insensitive to that poor family? He says, I found it disgusting. She said, I've never heard anything like that. It was manipulative. It was disgusting. It was insensitive. Worst of all, it was also true. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't have time to be quarreling with one another. Time is running out. Reconciliation begins with reaching out. It ends with sacrifice. I'd like to close with, by reading a passage from Romans chapter 12, verses 16 to 21. Paul says this, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will reap, heap burning coals on his head. Do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that we, while we were hanging in that tree, helpless and unable to save ourselves, you came down to the earth to take our place, to take our punishment so that we could have peace and so that we could have a relationship with you. Lord, we thank you that you're a God who reached out to us, who sacrificed for us. Lord, as a people, we pray that we would be people who do the same thing to those around us that we'd reach out to those who we're maybe at enmity with and that we'd sacrifice and as much as possible to live in peace. Lord, we know it's not always possible. We know there'll always be conflict. There'll always be quarrels. But may we not stand in the way of peace. May we not be the ones who are giving in to quarreling. May we be the ones who are pointing to your reconciliation and to your love. In Christ's name I pray, amen.